It's very good for us to be here. We, we truly enjoy being here. We truly enjoy your fellowship. And we truly value the support and sustenance that you have been to us over these many years. We have been, I'm starting my 24th year of work in Bible translation. And you have been faithful to us far beyond what we could really understand in every way. We've been grateful. Um, it has been a interesting and difficult situation recently in the last few years. Becky and I were talking about, you know, most missionaries start out with young kids and then the kids grow up and then they're just the missionaries by themselves. We're doing just the opposite. Okay, we're starting out by ourselves and then adding the kids at the end. So we're, but anyway, the Lord's been gracious to us. We're very grateful for the privilege of sharing with you the word this morning. I'd like to mention I just got back in January from Central African Republic. And also in February, the third New Testament that I have been able to see from start to finish was, was dedicated in Mali, the Songhai New Testament. So I have been privileged by the Lord to see through to completion three New Testaments in 24 years and work with quite a few other projects as well. But I'm grateful for what the Lord has done and how he has enabled us. And he has enabled us because of you, because of you and the churches that have sustained us and kept us going. We have been able to do without worry, continue doing the work that the Lord has called us to do. We've been very grateful for that. And it's a real privilege to be here with you this morning. Uh, I'd like us to consider, I was very pleased with the topic that is, is your theme of your message, of your conference this morning, and I have a message to share with you that we will be entitling The Harvest of All Things. I mean, you know, that sounds kind of unique, but The Harvest, it's interesting, um, when I was a student, there was a friend of mine who wrote this song called He That Goeth Forth, and of course he took it from Psalm 126. And he was wanting to set it up for orchestra or something. So he came to me, and I wrote an orchestra and choir arrangement of it. Unfortunately, it's still just on paper. We did perform it once many years ago, and I think that's the last time it's been heard. But anyway, it was a, it was a very deep theme to me. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing bringing his sheaves with you. If you have your Bibles, I'd like us to turn to Psalm 126 and the importance of the harvest. And I point this in the right direction. Let's see, am I doing this right? I've got the switch on. Ah, there we are. Okay, sorry. Too many buttons. I have to wait. Okay. There we are. Okay, now stop. Okay. <laughs> okay. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Let's pray together and ask the Lord's blessing upon this time. Our Father in heaven, we are 
rejoicing that you are the Lord of the harvest and that you are sending forth laborers and that your harvest is indeed plentiful. And we ask you, Lord, as we consider this psalm together this morning, that you would use me as you would be see fit to do so, that I would be able to be an instrument in your hands, and that, Lord, this your word would be the power that is meant to be in our lives. Direct and help us, we pray. Guide us and keep us, we ask, in this time this morning together, in Christ's name. Amen. Very interesting psalm. Now, you might notice that um, this is not the same translation as you may have, and of course, these days, that could be said about a lot of things because everybody carries different translations around. But it's interesting because um, <clears throat> the various interpretations fall to verse 1. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, that's kind of an interesting phrase. Some of them say when the Lord made a change in Zion's fate. ESV says when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. New American Standard, when the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion. Nat Bible says when the Lord restored the well-being of Zion. New Living, when the Lord brought back his exiles to Jerusalem. And the Common English Bible, when the Lord changed Zion's circumstances for the better. So that's a very interesting collection of possibilities, from very broad to very specific. Okay, And so I think that the translators sometimes are trying to apply this thing to a lot of different things. And when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, when did he do that? He did that when he brought back the captives from exile in Babylon. He reversed a trend and a situation that was the defeat of God's people and turned it into a great victory. And so that concept of bringing back the captivity of Zion is the thing that I'm, I'm focusing on as we consider this message together. It's kind of interesting. If you consider Israel as a nation, Israel was a, an agrarian society. Harvest was a deep part of their lives. I might ask this morning, how many farmers do we have here today, this morning? How many of you are farmers? Okay, now 100 years ago, if we'd done that, probably every hand would have gone up, (laughs) okay? We're not an agrarian society anymore so much. We do have farmers and we appreciate them, but most of us don't know much about farming. As a matter of fact, my mother and father were both raised on farms, and um, the the closest I got to farming was weeding the family garden, which I didn't care for very much, okay. But we did it. I enjoyed the vegetables. So Israel was a deep part of their lives. And Israel in the wilderness, you know, it's interesting, when Israel was, has escaped from Egypt and they were heading in the wilderness to go to the land that God had promised them, they talked about a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, now, milk and honey is the vocabulary of nomads, it's the vocabulary of sheep herders and of, of, of animal husbandry, you know, milk, okay, from the animals and honey, wild honey all around. But when they get into the land, Israel in the land is a land of grain, wine, and oil. All of a sudden, their outlook changes and become a society that harvests and grows things. The term Pentecost, we talk about Pentecost, and you've all heard of Pentecost Sunday as 50 days after, after the Feast of uh, First Fruits in the time of, right around the time of Easter, Pentecost is the feast of harvest. It marks the end of the harvest. This was a big deal for Israel as a nation. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 8.8, there's, and if you know any Jewish people, the seven species are an important part of Israel's heritage. There were seven types of grains and things and fruits that were produced. As a matter of fact, in, I'm sorry, I'll have to go back here. In my office at 
Bibles International, I have, this is my mouse pad that I have in my office. Now, it might seem kind of strange to have a seven species mouse pad, but I was teaching in Israel Hebrew to Bible translators, and as an appreciation, they got me a mouse pad with the seven species on it. Okay, so that's kind of cool. <laughs> anyway, you see wheat, barley, pomegranates, olives, grapes, dates, which were squeezed to make a sort of a thing that they called honey, and then figs in the center. These were the principal grains and the principal crops. These were very important indications of God's goodness and God's grace. And so there are a lot of Bible verses about the harvest. Of course, Jeremiah 8.20, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. The implication being we've gathered in the harvest, the summer is ended, and we don't have enough crops to survive. We didn't get a good enough harvest to be able to last the year. What are we going to do? We're not saved, and we're not able to continue. And then, of course, the verse that's a part of our, um, your, I'll get there, that. Am I pushing this button too quick or something? There we are. We'll just get two of them up there. Okay, Matthew 9, 37 and 38, which is, of course, your verse for this conference. And he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. Matthew thirteen thirty nine: the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angel. Everything is geared toward the idea of a harvest. And then John four thirty five: do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Revelation fourteen fifteen: and another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the throne, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. There's coming a day when all of this is going to be reaped, and we are working toward a harvest of magnificent dimensions. A harvest that what we're doing right now is important, but just a small part of what that harvest is going to be. The day when the angels come and reap the earth and the harvest of the earth is fully ripe, everything is brought to a conclusion and the Lord God reigns forever and ever. What a day. What a marvelous thing. So this concept of the harvest is deeply buried in scripture. And so this morning, as we consider Psalm 127, it's interesting because there's also another concept found in this psalm, and that's the concept of captivity. Well, what does captivity have to do with harvest? Why does the psalmist write about harvest and captivity side by side? Well, these are a few pictures that you might find interesting. The, um, these are the two ones that are square are relief carvings on palaces of Assyrian kings to show what they did. And what they did was they conquered nations and then they led the people away. They deported them to another place as captives. And the idea was if you take a people who you conquer and you let them live in their land again, they're just going to rebel again. So we transport them to another place where they have no ties and no linked to anything, and they have to start over again, and they stop rebelling. And then right up above the coin there is Vespasian's coin, and if you see on the right side there, it says Judea Capta, Judea Capta, and so that woman sitting there is Israel, or Judah, captive to the Romans. So how would you like to carry coins around in your pocket that said, St. John's captive? How would you feel about it if Lansing issued a new, con- new coin to say, we're going to show all the cities in, La- in Michigan that we're in control? <laughs> what a picture of the idea of 
captivity. Captivity was a painful thing to the nation. And so we find the captivity and the harvest mentioned together in this psalm. And I say, strange bedfellows. What, what do these two things have to do with each other? And I'd like to suggest that these two ideas associated in this psalm help us understand our role as Christians in the world in a marvelous way. And I hope we can share that with you and you'll follow as we go along. My outline this morning is, uh, you got to read fast. I'm going <laughs> to... Okay, God's people and the nations, verses 1 through 2, God's people in captivity, verses 3 and 4, and then God's people in the harvest, verses 5 and 6. So here you are, you and I together, we are God's people. So this psalm is directed toward us to help us understand some things about ourselves. The first section, God's people and the nations. All right. Um, verses 1 through 2. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were as those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. I'd like to suggest to you that the idea of restoration, or put it this way, God's people in the nations, what happens to God's people has a profound effect upon the nations. Now, I'm not talking about America as a country, okay? I'm talking about God's people wherever they are found, that the hope of the nations, everything the nations depend on for their well-being ultimately rests with God's people. God's people, whatever we do, whether we're in captivity or whether we're in harvest or whatever we do, whether we're prospering or we're, we're defeated, what happens to us is essentially important to the nations. And you and I need to believe that and not only believe it, live by that concept that what I do in my Christian life affects the world in one way or another. And that's a big concept, but it's important to realize that what we do, and when I talk about Like I said, I'm not talking about America. American foreign policy, I'm not going to comment on too much, but it's interesting. We've had two presidents that are just about the opposite from each other, except for in one area. They both had a miserable foreign policy. America has more or less ignored the world, but Christians have a different responsibility. We have a different outlook. Whatever our nation does, we need to have our eyes open. And I'd like to suggest to you that there are a bunch of world eye-openers for Christians that we need to get involved in. For one thing, Operation World. If you're not familiar with this, this is a publication, the new recent publication, Window on the World. It gives an outlook of nations, of people groups and things for you to pray about, for us to get aware of. We as Christians need to have our eyes open to the world. Now, I will tell you, I, I have gone through a transformation in this. And obviously, the work I'm doing involves this in a great deal. In the last 24 years, I have been in 40 different countries, 19 of those for translation. Before that, when I was in high school, I visited Canada once and the Bahamas once, and that was my experience in overseas. Since then, I have added a few more countries. And the idea is that it has opened my eyes to what is happening in the world and what is out there. It has enabled me to have an understanding that is hard to explain otherwise. You know what the 1040 window is, the region between 10 degrees latitude and 40, 10 degrees and 40, 
across from the west of, east of Africa all the way to the east of Asia, where 90% of the world's population lives. This concept of the 1040 window was, was coined by a missionary-minded writer to help us understand the vision of the world. The Joshua Project is another project that talks about, you can look these things up online and find out about them, where you can find out about specific people groups and their needs. And then I have also the Ethnologue, which is rather technical, but also lists all of the languages of the world and how many people speak them, what the literacy rate is, all kinds of things. And then for kids... Now, this is somewhat dated, and I hope a lot of these people have received this, but this is a book that my wife and I have used many times called From Arapesh to Zuni. And it's about 26 different language groups all the way from A to Z. Everyone, there's a letter for them. All these people don't have a Bible. And so it describes them. And so it helps kids understand. And as your kids, if the kids understand and the parents are listening as they read to the kids, you might catch a few things yourself, okay? Also, now this is somewhat funny. Since we've gotten our grandkids at home, we've started seeing different things on TV. I don't know if you're familiar with the program called Super Wings. But it's a, it's a secular program, but it's about deliveries to different countries. And the interesting thing is these little um, anthropomorphic airplanes fly all over the world to visit different countries and give kids packages. And in the process, the kids find out about all kinds of different places in the world. So it's a great way for kids just to get introduced to the world that we live in. You know, we as Americans, we have the luxury of forgetting about things because we live in such a large area where one language is spoken. There's just no place else like it on the earth. We have great privileges, but therefore we should do something about it. I would suggest to you that Christians have a special responsibility in concerning the nations and that every one of us should be a student of the nations. And, you know, our brother sang the song about being a testimony and being wherever we are. And I just was touched by that song. I thought about yesterday, I was standing in line in the grocery store and the little young lady who was ringing up things, she was Muslim, I could tell. She had on a hijab. And so she was standing there, and it was a cold day, and she had on a sweater as well as a hijab. And I, as I got up there, I said to her, are you kind of cold? She says, yeah, it's really cold here. And I said, well, I guess the hijab really helps, doesn't it? And she perked up, and she looked at me, and she says, yes, in fact, in the wintertime. Just the fact that I knew what to call the thing she was wearing opened up something Try to be kind and open to the people around you. Open up the door because one of the things that I learned from a man I talked to about evangelism was I was first in the ministry. He said, keep the door open. Leave the door open with people. Do things that allow you to understand people. We tend to be sort of gun shy of people who look foreign. They are the very kind of people we ought to be the most open with. The world has come to us, and we can learn about the world by doing that. God's people and the nations, the nation's fate rests in the hands of what God's people do or don't do. And that has to be a reality to us. That needs to be deep in our hearts and souls, that the nations are looking to us. And I'm not talking about any political agenda whatsoever. I'm not a politician, I'm not a political person in my own outlook in general, but I am a person concerned for the nations. And who the people of the world are is something that ought to burn in our hearts. We ought to find out about people. We ought to know things about what people do, and there are ways to do it, and there are ways to enrich your life by doing it and enable you to be effective. So, 
Um, let's go on from there. God's people in captivity. All right, now this is where the rubber meets the road, okay? So what's the problem? The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Well, I thought he already did. Why is the psalmist now talking about bringing back our captivity? I think that's because in our part of the world, first of all, we don't see people being led away at spear point or even gunpoint, I hope. But in certain parts of the world, that's common. But this is not as common. The thing is, captivity can come in various forms today. We all have the danger of captivity. And we think of, when we think about captivity, we think about criminals. We think about people being slammed into jail. And that is a reality of type of captivity. We think of addictions, maybe. And we think of also compulsions. Things that might bind up people and make them captive. And of course, none of us are guilty of those, so we're okay, right? (laughs) That's where the idea of more common acceptable captivities come in. And this is the thing that probably hits us the hardest. Things like entertainment, games, and sports. Oh, now, Pastor, you've gone to Medlin now. You stop preaching, you know, okay? (laughs) Okay, these things are things that can captivate us just as much as a crime or an addiction. They can keep us from being effective. It's great to enjoy good things in moderation, but they can go overboard. Anything can become a captivity to us. Television. I am convinced that television is one of the biggest waste of times that there is. One of the reasons why I like things like Super Wings because you can turn it on and turn it off and there's no commercials. Do you realize that the major reason for network television is to deliver an audience to commercial to advertisers? That's the main reason why it is there. You can't have anything too smart because then people will turn it off. So it has to be dumbed down sufficiently so everybody will watch it and get the commercial because that's why they're there, is to sell things. All right. Sorry if I shocked you. (laughs) All right, so... um, And then personal pleasures and pursuits. There's nothing wrong with certain things of being feel good and enjoy it, but what we end up with is where our goal ends up being personal peace and prosperity. We just enjoy what we've got, and we just don't want anybody to bug us. That should never be true of Christians. We've got to be careful about the things that captivate us, the things that can keep us from being aware of the harvest. And so, as I think about this, the psalmist prays to God about captivity, about, to God about captivity, not to the captors. Your captivity and my captivity, whatever it is, might be. And I've been doing soul searching myself as I prepared this message. I thought, if I'm not prepared to look at my own captivities, how can I preach to others? My relationship to my captivities depends on my relationship to God. It doesn't depend on my captors. I can't ask the captors to let me go. They're not really interested or even aware. No one can deliver from captivity except God. He is the only one that can unbind us. That's why the psalmist prays, deliver, change my fortunes, give me my, take away my captivity. Our captivity or lack thereof is between us and God, no one or nothing else, and is a subject of earnest prayer. And it says, return our captivity as the streams in the south. All right, now you might not know what this means, but in the land of Israel, <clears throat> the south area is not exactly desert, but it's not... Um, it's not very cultivatable. It rains once a year in those regions, and during that regions, the gullies that were dry as can be suddenly become rivers. 
All right, so all of a sudden, everything blossoms. And so he's saying, Lord, will you please take this captivity away so things can blossom just like the rains come to those regions and all of a sudden, everything grows. This is important for us. What holds you captive? And I ask you that question very seriously. Each one of us needs to answer this question. What holds us captive? What are things that are beyond our control that we do that we simply don't think about and they keep us from things that are more important? What holds you captive? Are you willing to face up to those things? Um, Have you prayed for open eyes to see your captivities? There may be people here this morning, you've never received Christ as your Savior. That's a type of captivity. You're captive to the sin that has kept you from believing in Jesus and receiving him as your personal Savior. That's a captivity. It's something you can't do anything about. You have to ask God to do something about it. You can't rescue yourself. You can't reform yourself. You can't make yourself good enough to make God happy because God's already dealt with the problem. You just have to accept his solution. That's all there is to it. And then there may be people here who are struggling with surrendering a particular area of their life that they just plain like too much. And it could be a bad thing, could be a good thing, could be a neutral thing, but all of us need to ask the question about surrender. And then how about service? Are there things that you could be doing that you know you could be doing, but you're either reluctant, afraid, or don't feel like you have the time? That's a type of captivity. I'm not able to do the thing that the Lord really wants me to do because, well, I have this responsibility. Well, talk to the Lord about it. He's the one who releases from captivity. He's the one who gives us the freedom to do whatever he wants us to do. And so God's people have to reckon with the concept of captivity before the harvest can become real in our lives. All right, so, uh, sorry, push, I'm I'm too eager with the buttons. I'm going to go back here. All right, God's people in the harvest. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. All right, so God's people in the harvest, there's nothing easy about the harvest and its preparation. I don't want to kid you that if you get rid of your captivities, everything will be great. It won't be. It'll be hard. It's demanding. Anything good is worth working for. Serving the Lord is not just falling off a log. It requires preparation. It requires commitment. It requires changing things in our lives, and it requires hard, earnest work. So there's nothing particularly easy about the harvest and its preparation, but it is important. The one who sows in tears. Now, why, do, why, does, the, why does the person sow in tears? Have you ever thought about the idea of what would you do if I've got so much grain and I've got so much year left? Do I eat this or do I sow it? Suppose you were in a situation where you had to choose between sowing the grain into the ground and waiting months for the harvest or eating it and feeding your family because there's nothing else. What would you do? How would you choose? This is the type of situation that exists in many parts of the world. As a matter of fact, I remember one missionary telling me that she realized toward the end of the summer, just before the harvest, a lot of kids were walking around hurting and they were, they were complaining. It was hunger. They just didn't have enough food because the harvest was still a ways away and they were desperate for something to eat. 
So do I eat it or do I sow it? Now, hopefully we realize that in the United States we don't have this problem. But we do have it another way. What about your time, your money, your talents, and your ambitions? Are you willing to sow them rather than spend them? Are you willing to take your time? Are you sowing them or just using them up? How are we doing with our time, our money, our talents, our abilities? Are we just simply using them up? Or are we depriving ourselves, in a sense, so that they can be sowed into the harvest and something even greater come out of it than what we would get out of it? Okay, so I've got this amount of time, and I can either enjoy certain thing, or I can unenjoy something and see a greater benefit farther down the line. It's a balance. It's a question that we ask ourselves. We should be asking ourselves all the time. How am I doing? How am I doing with the resources that God has given me? You know, people in the rest of the world think everybody in the United States is rich. I don't know if you know that. If you've ever traveled overseas, everybody in the world thinks that everybody in the United States is rich. And they're right. (sighs) You wouldn't believe that... I, I hardly ever see anything in the United States that even comes close to true poverty because we have so much. Even the poor people have so much. Even the people we would call poor have more than most people in, that are really poor. Now, I'm not trying to make us feel guilty. You shouldn't feel guilty about that. That's a great blessing. But what are you doing with it? How are you using this great blessing that God has given you? Are you just eating it up or are you sowing it? Are you sowing what God has given you so as to produce a bigger harvest? Are you taking what God has given you and putting it away from you to produce a harvest? How are you doing? What kind of farmer are you spiritually? Are you sowing or just use up? One way or another, every one of us is either part of the harvest or part of the captives being led away by something or someone else. We, these captivity and the harvest are intimately connected to each other. And so I'd ask this question. <clears throat> the harvest we want demands labor and tears, but produces fruit and great rejoicing. He who continually goes forth weeping. The idea in the original language is he goes and goes. He goes going. It's like an intensive idea. He doesn't give up. She keeps going. She does what is necessary because what is necessary produces great fruit but it requires patience. It requires deferring things that we think are important in place of things that are more important. What do we want more? Do we want the captivity or do we want the harvest? It's a matter of choice. Where do we go? What are we sowing in our lives to produce? Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I'd ask you to just think this week, or even especially today, about one thing you can sow in your life that will produce a harvest in one way or another. And just start doing that one thing more than what you're doing now. Just find one thing that would be beneficial to God and to his kingdom that you can start doing now that will... Take the place of something else that you have been doing that's maybe not evil, but just isn't that important. And sow that in your life, in your church, in your community, and see what God does. Just start with one thing, 
And let's keep adding as we see that it really does produce a benefit. Now, I might, might tell you that if you start that, I'm not going to guarantee that you're going to see everything successful. As a matter of fact, you probably will find a lot of resistance to it because anything worth doing, you have to pull out the weeds, you have to get the dirt, you have to get the clods out of the dirt, you have to get the rocks out. A lot of things have to happen before something good happens in the harvest, and it's the same way in our lives. So what are we doing? Are we part of the captives or are we part of the harvest? What do you have in your life that you can sow so as to reap great benefit? And every one of us, including me, thinks about, needs to think about that. I need to do the same thing. I need to ponder in my own life, what am I taking time for that I don't have to that could be used in another way? Or what give I have resources that are being sort of funneled the wrong way? How can I do this? What can I do it? And as I said, if, there's, if you think about the captivity, as I close this morning, I'd just like you to think about this. What am I held captive by that I need to let go of? What am I held captive by that I can turn loose of and see God's blessing in my life? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can sow in tears and reap in joy. And we know, Lord, that your work demands things of us that are hard but great benefit. We pray that you would direct us and help us. Help us to be honest with ourselves, Lord. Help us to be hard on ourselves. Help us to remember that there's a huge world out there that is directly affected by what we do. Guide and keep us, we pray, Father. In Christ's name, amen.